The Dark Word is a podcast about writing, writers, and those who read those writers. The goal of this podcast is to focus on the profession of writing, whether it be the creative process, the business side of things, or simply offering advice on how to be a pro. We'll be hearing from some of the best in the business over the upcoming episodes. And true to our name, The Dark Word focuses on writers who tend to hang out in the shadowy side of the room. These are the names you think of when you hear horror, suspense, noir. The names who have chilled you and thrilled you. So follow me down this dark hallway because there's someone I'm dying for you to meet. Dying for you to meet. Dying. And welcome to the dark word. I am your host, Philip Fricasi, and I am honored to have Joe Lansdale on today's show. Joe has written novels and stories in many genres, including Western horror, science fiction, mystery and suspense. He's also written for comics as well as the Batman animated series. As of 2020, he's written 50 novels, 5-0 and published more than 30 short story collections. His stories have won 10 Bram Stoker Awards, a British Fantasy Award, an Edgar Award, a World Horror Convention Grandmaster Award, a Sugar Prize, a Grinzane Cavour Prize, I'm probably butchering that, for literature, a Spur Award, and a Raymond Chandler Lifetime Achievement Award. He has been inducted into the Texas Literary Hall of Fame, and several of his novels have been adapted to film. Joe, welcome to The Dark Word. So happy to have you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be asked. So I like to start these interviews by doing something very uncomfortable for the, for the writer, which is to say, I want to go back to the beginning and I want to just pick your brain very quickly about when you were first starting out writing, you know, I'm trying to give new writers that sort of like shared experience. And I know, you know, you've been doing this for a long time and I've met you before. And I remember one of the things you said to me was, I met you at a, uh, in Burbank, you were doing a signing and I was there and you said, man, I've had thousands and thousands of rejections. And you said it was such, you know, earnestness. And I, and I'm, so I'm looking at your bio and like your biblio and I can see your first, as far as I can tell, your first novel was act of love in 1980. Can you give us a, a couple of bullet points about what, what things were like back then for you, how you finally broke through and, and how that experience was, what you learned from it? Well, you know, actually, my first publication was 1973. That was my first sale. I think it was 74, 75 before it happened. My mother and I wrote an article together, and I wrote a number of articles and short stories. But my first novel, I think it was actually 1981, mm -hmm. but I, I could be off on that because I went full time in 1981, partly due to that, that sale. But when I started, it was different than it is now. And so some of the things are just the same, but the way we presented our stories was different because they were typewritten and they were sent by mail with return postage on an envelope Sure. so that if they hated it, which was early on most of the time, that they could just send it back, usually with a form rejection, but now and again with a, uh, a note. And back then too, they had, they had other readers. An editor had help. They had second readers or sort of assistant editors. And sometimes you'd send something to get there in three days and come back in three more. And you thought, man, when did they read that? And then in other times you would send it out and it might be a month, two months, and then you would have to query them and find out they never got it and so on and so on. So you had a lot of that kind of stuff. But the advantage that you had is that 
I actually literally did have a thousand rejects once. And uh, it had to do with the fact that I wrote a story a day for 90 days. And back then you had 10 to 15 markets you could send something to. So over about a four year span after I wrote those stories, I kept receiving rejections from all these different magazines. And uh, it came out literally to write about a thousand rejects. And, uh, but I, I got a lot of junk out of my system by doing that. And I always think that that's a good piece of information for a writer. A writer writes and you start out by writing, doing the best you can always, every time out. And some will probably do better than I, but I was 21 when I sold my first piece, 29 when I went full time and have been that way ever since. But I've always felt that that 90 days, plus, you know, I continue to write after that. I, I begin to realize that maybe trying to knock one out every day was not a good idea because mm -hmm. they mostly suck. <laughs> but I got a lot of junk out of my system. I really did. And I still think that that's important and to be a, a ferocious reader. But more important, and I didn't do this early on, is write like everybody you know is dead. Don't write for other people write for yourself. Everybody else is not out there. They don't exist. They're dead. And then when you get through, you can hope like hell that you can please somebody. Uh, there are some writers who I think understand the mass group of readers better than I do, because I know that there are a lot of people out there, but I don't know what they want. And I don't know what, you know, a certain audience wants. So I found out that by writing for myself as being the audience myself, that I was more likely to, um, please. And uh, that's what happened. So if I please myself, there were probably readers like me that like things. And you, you can't be universally admired anyway. And it's a stupid idea to even think that or to be. And, and I think now the big thing is, is on the internet, there's all the trolls, you know, you did this, you did that, stuff like that. You just, just have to ignore. I don't have a whole lot of that, but it pops up. It's, it's unimportant. And uh, I think in the past they had to, uh, find you somewhere in a, a zine, you know, uh, what we call, you know, mystery zines or science fiction zines or so on. But now you got all that kind of stuff that's different. And back then it was pr sure. primarily you and uh, the mail. And uh, I never met an editor till I had been published for, even after my first two novels, I don't think I'd ever met an editor at that point. So, you know, once I met an editor and and I think it's important if you can meet editors, not because it's going to make your work necessarily any better, but because if you're writing good work, it's often ignored just because there's such a, a clamor for so many different things that if you know an editor and you know an agent and you meet them personally, at least you put a face to the name. And it may, in fact, give them a little more inclination to read something that they might actually have skimmed or ignored. Sure. Um, so I think I still think that's a that's a good idea. And often used back then you could meet a lot of editors and agents and even publishers at conventions. That's not so true now, but there are opportunities here and there to do that. And if you keep up with that, I recommend that. But most of all, I recommend just being determined. And when you finish something, don't wait around to see what happens. Start something new, and then uh, you know be a relentless uh, marketer. If you, you know, get, get a, a query letter out there and somebody says uh, you know, that you should um, re rewrite this or rewrite that, then you might consider it. But other than that, don't do a bunch of rewrites. Don't get in with a bunch of groups and readers that tell you what's wrong with it all the time. Have faith in yourself, you know? Right. Well, 
Okay. So yeah, so there's a lot you just covered that I want to, I want to delve into. So, but one of the things I wanted to hit first of all, is you talked about voice and that's something I brought up with other writers on this show. And it's like, and I think you said it great, which is, uh, you know, write for yourself. And I ultimately that can get you further than trying to adapt to a trend because I think what editors and correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, I think what editors really want is an original voice. There's only so many tropes. There's only so many stories that you can tell, but but you can tell a story. Only you, being a writer, can tell the story the way you would tell it. And I think that's what makes having a voice such a positive thing is having a unique, a unique voice and not chasing the trends. I, I think that's true. I don't know that they always do want an original voice. I think sometimes they want something that sounds like something else. And that unfortunately can lead to you sounding like somebody else. And uh, that's not what I want. And I, I never really wanted to be published to be published. I think early on, I did want that. I wanted to be published to be published. And I was that way for maybe eight or nine, maybe even 10 years. And then I began to do what I said before, as I thought I started writing like everybody I knew was dead. And I did develop a voice, mm-hmm. but I, I don't, that, that was uh, that was tough too, because it was unique. And the kind of stories I wrote were definitely walked the line. They're the sort of things now that uh, the extreme politically correct would go nuts for. And I still write the same kind of stories because I have my intent. I know what it is. I'm not going to be bullied. And uh, sure, you know, I just feel like that that's what another thing you have to have. You have to have a certain confidence that you build up about yourself and to not be seeking everybody's uh, opinions and thoughts. Because uh, there's always somebody that's got an opinion and thought, and opinions vary, as as we used to say in martial arts. You know, when somebody said, "Is that person good?" Opinions vary, and uh, I think that you you still have to write for yourself. I think it's the key to everything, along with the fact of sitting down every day and doing it, or at least certainly have some kind of reasonable schedule and being an ardent reader. Those are the, those are the things that count. Yeah. And I think it's interesting about that. You mentioned the social media and with Amazon having, you know, uh, that's another thing that's only happened over the last 20 years is the Amazon star rating. And, you know, I tell people who get, you know, sometimes people get upset because it's like, oh, I got a one star or whatever. And I'm like, look, imagine, look at your album collection. You know, how many of those albums do you like and how many songs on those albums do you like? Like nobody's ever, nobody's going to like everything. It's why they call it art. Right. And I think you can get you can get buried in that, you know, negativity. And you have to realize like, look, if they don't, if someone doesn't like this, then that they're not my reader, or they might like one book and not like another, especially when you talk about the, the wide variance of, of material that you create, yeah. which is you kind of, you do whatever you want. You, sometimes it's sci-fi, sometimes it's pulp, sometimes it's noir, sometimes it's a thriller. And you're just kind of like, look, it, it is what it is. And um, not everyone's going to like, everything. I think that's important for writers to hear. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I like to write things that are serious and then things that aren't, and then things that are in between. And, uh, you know, I, sometimes I feel more serious. I have something I, I'm really wanting to say. And, and I, I, sometimes I feel, I think everything should be literate when you write it, right. but sometimes i the stuff falls in genre and sometimes it falls outside of genre. And sometimes it feels like two or three genres at once. And so to me, that's the joy and the freedom of writing and the reason I wanted to be one in the first place. And it's, it's worked for me. You know, I've, I've succeeded financially. I've succeeded personally. I've succeeded uh, at least from my own viewpoint artistically. Mm-hmm. So it worked for me. And I'm, I don't claim that my methodology works for everyone else. You know, it, it won't, and it doesn't, 
But I do know that you, you're not going to make it unless you sit down and give it regular exercise. I don't even write but three hours a day. And I do it just about seven days a week, you know. And so, some days I may take off to just, you know, do something else. And usually it's related to writing. But most of the time I'm on it. And I, I try not, I try to know the difference between taking off and goofing off. Right. And I don't wait for the muse. I don't believe in, in inspiration like that. I believe the inspiration is there and you're the muse. So you need to set your ass in a chair and do it. I also find that uh, on those days when you feel the most inspired and when you feel glorious and that you've reached some plane beyond everyday life and you've written, and then you look at the days when you felt like that, you know, you, just wanted to do anything but that, they don't always vary that much. Not enough. And so feeling you for it doesn't necessarily mean that that day's better than those days when it feels a little bit more like drudgery. Right. And let me ask you a question. So I know you, you, you've you covered this before in other interviews and stuff where you've talked about your your schedule where you, you write three hours in the morning and, and that's pretty much your day. And and one of the things that I, I thought of when I when I read that or the first time I was kind of thinking, and also you're, you're what, would, what we'd affectionately refer to as a pantser, which is that you don't have, you don't do a lot of outlining, correct? You kind of- I don't do any. Right, it is what it is. You don't like to work with outlines. I know that about you. So um, my question though is, when you sit down, let's say you have an idea, and I know sometimes you talked about how a short story idea drops in fully formed and and you have to unload it for, you know, yeah. or, or sometimes maybe you're just teased with an acorn of something. At what point do you, what I'm curious about is what point do you know if that idea is going to become a novel or if that idea is going to be a short story? Like when you just start writing something and if it kind of takes off, do you find yourself going, hey, wait a minute, you know what, I could expand this or it, or is, or is, it, or is it, uh, approaching a novel something you kind of do separately in your head? I, most of the time I have an idea and I know what it is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but once in a while it'll fool me. I, you know, I've had novels come out of what I thought was going to be a short story or a, a novelette or what have you. And then, uh, you know, most of the time I just don't fight it. If I have a novel due and I've made a, an agreement for a, a novel, then I know that what I'm starting is more than likely going to be a novel. Now and again, rare times I'll start something and say, this isn't working for me. And I'll just quit doing it or I'll put it aside and come back to it later if I think it could be a good novella or short story or what have you. And now and again, I come back to it later and I go, hell, it is a novel. It just was doesn't seem like one then. I don't have a lot of trouble with that, though. Most of the time, you know, I know I sometimes I don't know the entire length of a short story, but I know it's a short story. It might be a long short story. It might even turn into a novelette, but I know it's not a novel. And often I know that I'm writing some quick, absurd story as well, you know, and, and that'll just happen instantly. I'll, the whole thing will be in my head for some reason. I'll sit down, I'll write it in an hour or two, and I'm done. But, you know, it var- it varies somewhat. Yeah, I was, was going to say, it's funny. I have your SST, your four-volume short story collection from SST, and, and one of the things I enjoy the most about reading those stories is the wide variance <laughs> that they present. You, you know, it's... It's a lot of fun. And, you know, that isn't even all my stories. Oh, I'm People sure. People have this illusion that, that that represents everything I've written, and no, it doesn't. Yeah. It represents a lot of what I think is the best, a lot of what I think is the interesting, and a lot of what I think just hasn't been seen that much. Mm-hmm. And uh, and some of those are not necessarily my greatest stories, Those, but, but some of those are worth reading, or I wouldn't have included them, at least in my own viewpoint. Sure, sure. As I said before, you, you can't be universally admired, and different readers have different opinions. Yeah. So I want to talk one more thing on this point is, and this is just me being curious as a writer. So I've written um, 
a lot of horror and I've written, I've written a science fiction novel and I, and I, and I've written a, and I've written a thriller. And for me, writing the thriller was, um, you know, had a mystery element. So there was a lot of, and you know, you've written screenplays. And uh-huh. so there's a lot of that whole, like, well, you got to seed certain things. You got to have the red herring. You got to have some misdirection. Right. So when you're writing sort of on the flow, and this might get into how you edit too, I have a feeling is uh, how much do you worry about that stuff when you sit down and you're like, all right, I'm writing cold in July or I'm writing more better deals. And I know that there has to be a sort of a struck, a mystery structure. So the reader is right. somewhat, you know, misguided or fooled. How do you do that when you're writing the way you write? Um, you know, cold in July, I dreamed it in one night. So I knew that whole story. I mean, I, I, I added little things here and there, but it, I had all the twists and turns when I woke up. Most of the time, though, I don't know those twists and turns or those red herrings, but my subconscious does. And when I'm writing, it'll put them in there. Mm -hmm. And then every now and again, I realize I need to go back and do a little editing to add something or to put something in. And I might have to change the scene a little bit. Mm -hmm. But mostly, very fortunate is that it happens. And actually, by doing it day by day, I discover new things I would not have discovered had I sat down and plotted it all out. Mm-hmm. If, if for instance, as I got older and I found I couldn't write unless I did plot, then I would try to plot, but I've tried it before. I don't like it. It makes me feel like I've already written the story and the story feels dry and um, it lacks that spark of spontaneity, which I think is one of the keynotes of my work. Yeah. I, I think um, another writer I think of in, in the same similar vein who I just spoke to uh, last week was Stephen Graham Jones. He writes in a similar fashion. Yeah. Yeah, Steve is a friend. I agree with him. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of rip, he kind of sits down and lets it rip. Yeah. He and I are very much alike. Yeah. We're very much alike in that range. And, and we have kind of the same interest and the same approach to things. And, you know, I, I, I don't think either one of us get up in the morning and go, now, how do I write a bestseller? I don't think we do that. Yeah. Let's talk quickly about genre because. I've read uh, a lot of your work and I love your Western stuff and I love your, I guess you could classify it as noir, although a lot of your stuff is fairly unclassifiable, which is great. And I've read a lot of your pulp stuff, which mainly came, you know, comes from subterranean or whatever. Right. I mean, as far as the, I mean, I know you, you mentioned this, but I would love for the readers to hear it. I know you've talked about this before, but when you sit down and when you sit down to write a book or a story, you don't, I mean, genre is not something you're worrying about. Am I correct? Right. You're You're correct. I mean, if somebody says, look, I want, I'm, I'm really in need of a pulp story, then of course my mind will start thinking of pulp. Sure. But that doesn't mean I, I suddenly go, Oh my God, what do I do to do pulp? I just say, okay, that's the, that's the engine or, or, it, that drives this, but it is not necessarily all of the parts of the car or the locomotive, you know, mm-hmm. it's merely the engine that drives it. So sometimes in that way, you know, and I have, I have contracts say with Mulholland for crime novels, but I also wrote for them edge of dark water and the thicket and paradise sky, none of which truly fit that particular thing to the T, mm-hmm. you know, they are suspenseful, uh, there's an element of mystery and edge of dark water, but you know, you can see that I couldn't stick to, to that. And, and, and I feel better for it. And I feel, I feel good too, that they were open enough to understand that I can't. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that has a lot to do with it is also having a, a publisher that sort of understands who you are and what you're doing. An editor that understands who you are and what you're doing. Right. I have Josh Kendall is my editor over there. And, you know, sometimes when I just say, I don't, I don't want to do that, that's when I'll write for Subterranean or uh, one of the other small presses. So to me, I don't really have to worry about that much. 
I, and, and sometimes I'll just write something. I'll go, well, let me see if Subterranean wants this. And and nine times out of 10, they do. And then when they don't, I turn around and sell it to somebody else. And usually if they don't want it, it's merely because it's too outside the field of what they can sell, not because that they hate it. Sure. And you know, the other thing about it is going deeper into not necessarily genre, but one of the things I personally, when I sit down to write something, one of the things I have to figure out first is tone. Like, what is the tone of this story? Because that really, that a lot of things click together for me. Then once I have the tone set, the voice of the story, I can kind of like, I can, I'm, I'm kind of free to go. As a writer, one of the things that really fascinates me about your work is, especially with your novels, because I know how hard, how hard it is to write a novel, is how your voice, uh, for lack of a better word, the, even the prose, the, the pay, everything about the book changes. Like if I were to, like I'm taking for an example, let's take more better deals versus say the thicket, mm-hmm. which, you know, versus call it, you know, big lizard or whatever, yeah. but like, but you can, but you, you feel immersed in a different pool of mm-hmm. story with, with your different, with your different books, moon Lake, for example, I felt I had not really read anything from you that really felt like Moon Lake when I first read it. Mm-hmm. I don't even know the question as much as I'm like, is that something that you just, once you figure out that that voice, once you figure out how this is going to sound, is that something that just happens or is it something you have to kind of give a little thought to before you before you just get into it? No, I, I generally just start. It just happens. I, I give thought in process, you know, as I'm, as I'm writing, sometimes I'll think, is that clear enough? Is that sharp enough? Uh, and, but I try to, you know, not bore myself. That's probably the best answer I can give. And, and it's probably one reason that, that the work is so variable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some things like the happen Leonard's things, uh, stories, even though they have a similar feel to them in some ways. And the characters, of course, are the characters and they're established. And I and I feel that I don't want to get too outside that universe. They're not suddenly going to be dealing with, you know, werewolves or something because that's not their world. But what I do think is that even when I do those, I try to do a different approach to crime or suspense fiction, mystery fiction every time out. Some of the books are more mystery. Some of them are more suspense. You know, some of them are, uh, the last one I did, Elephant of Surprise, is what I I call momentum novel. Hmm. And I was trying to just keep momentum going that entire time. Uh, And uh, I I wasn't, you know, successful 100%, but I was successful 95%, you know. So I'm I'm always, yeah, I'm always experimenting with those books, too. Some of them are more funny and more broad than others. Some are more realistic. Uh, but yet there's still, you don't feel like you're outside their universe. You always feel like you're in their universe because that voice is established by Hap and that and Hap speaks a certain way. He has a certain way of looking at things in the same way that Leonard does, the other character right. in those. You know, and, you know, I was it William Somerset Mom or some, or, not, or what was his first name wasn't William, Somerset Mom anyway. Somerset Mom, yeah. Uh-huh. He said, I think it was him that said, you know, a novel's an easy way to write a short story. And I kind of think that's true. A short story takes less time, but in some ways, outside of one of those, it just bumps immediately. In some ways, they're harder because they have to, they're more clever and you can go in different ways with them. You can write a hundred different viewpoints where a novel, no matter how reasonably prolific you are, and I say reasonably because there's some people that can turn out a novel a week, but you know, the question is who wants to read them. Right. And uh, you know, I'm prolific, but if you really look at my number of novels, it about balances out about uh, each year for how long I've been a writer. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I have like 51 novels and I've been doing this uh, right at 50 years. 
So maybe a little less than that. So I've really been averaging about a novel and a little bit a year. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is I didn't really start writing novels. So I'd already been doing it about eight years or I wrote some that were terrible and I, I, I never did anything with it. But when you add the short stories in and that I do frequently, although I'm slowing down a little bit there, all the screenplays, teleplays, animation, right. comic books and stuff like that. I am a prolific writer but probably nowhere near what people think. What I am is steady. I, you know, I don't have a lot of excuses that I use not to work. Yeah. And you were steady before you were doing it full time. I mean, you were steady when you still had a day job and a wife and I'm sure kids and all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And really quickly, I want to talk about Happen Leonard a little bit and I want to get a couple of things, but early on when you were, when you were, when you did have that day job and you did have the family, you know, the race and you weren't making enough money, how, how, how did your writing uh, change as far as like, okay, now you're doing three hours a day back then. Were you just like when I could, anytime I could, was that kind of the way it worked? No, I had a, I had pretty much set schedules. Then sometimes I did depending on the jobs or if I was working two jobs, but mostly I would get up early. And uh, if I had to say, leave the house at six or seven, then I was up an hour earlier to write. But mostly mm-hmm. what I did is when I came in at the end of the day, I would, uh, you know, I would have dinner. We would, my wife and I would visit and then about 1030, she would go to bed. And then my deal was I either had to have uh, three pages or midnight before I quit because I needed to quit by midnight to get up at six and milk the goats and do all that stuff because we had a goat dairy Mm -hmm. and then go to work for somebody else, usually in the rose fields or, or one of the, you know, some kind of field work. So I would just do that. And, and usually, uh, you know, I would get the three pages and they weren't all good, but I was learning. And if I didn't get the three pages and it came midnight, I would go to bed. Right. But I did that. Then on the weekend, I would get up early and would work four or five hours a day. And then we would have lunch and maybe if we could afford it, go to a movie or, um, you know, we TV, we got, I think we only got like maybe two channels and, uh, we didn't always have one back then. And, uh, you know, you there wasn't much on we wanted to see. So we would lay in bed and read. That was kind of our our big day after taking care of all the animals and stuff on the weekend. And, you know, I, I so I, I kind of had a schedule all along, but I was I've always been flexible. Like when I travel, I used to travel quite a bit, uh, you know, to England, uh, to, well, to Britain, to, to Italy, to France, and Germany and Romania, wherever it is that we went. I would take my laptop with me and I would write when I had time. And I'm averaged, I generally averaged uh, anywhere from half hour to an hour or two a day, even then. Yeah. And, and real early on, I didn't take the laptop with me. I just said, well, this is a vacation, but it got to where I was traveling so much that I knew that I was losing three and four months a year if I didn't work. So a lot of times we would go to a place and they'd say, you know, we're going to have a, a, a signing at, at two or something. And uh, uh, we would get ready. And then while my wife was showering, I'd write. She'd be doing her business and I would write. And then we'd go to the event. And then sometimes right before bed, I'd write again. And if I was on the plane, I would try to write. Um, I do a little less of that now, but I still do it. I'm regularly, I like, uh, I wrote the thicket 90% of it in Italy while on book tour. You know, I wrote Paradise Sky in Italy as well and Germany and, uh, and, and Britain. And all those different places, I, I wrote that. I've worked on it, you know, every day. And I wrote the bulk of, um, I guess I actually wrote the bulk of uh, 
Paradise Sky in Italy, but I wrote in those other countries. I think I wrote Fender Lizards in Italy. I wrote uh, uh, All the Earth Thrown to the Sky in the bulk of it in two weeks in Key West and uh, just working mornings. And then when I got home, I finished up. So you can see it. And for me, it's really about being consistent. And I have a short attention span. So I, I'm better off if I work short term and do well because I, I get diminishing returns as the day goes on. Dean Koontz once told me he gains as he goes and he gains momentum. I'm not that way. I start out as good as I'm going to get and go downhill. <laughs> right. I you know I have to say this is one. I think I read it and you might have read it on your website. There's this really funny. And I was laughing when you're talking about uh, how, you know, how your family struggled for money when you were growing up. And I'm butchering your 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 quote, but something about your dad saying once, if shitting cost money, we'd all have to vomit. Yeah, yeah I said, if it, if it cost a quarter to shit, we'd have to throw up. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. That's great. <laughs> that's a great line. Well, a couple of things that you just said that I want to I want to tack on as lessons for writers. I think one important thing is the fact that you write, whether or not you feel like it's going anywhere concrete, you just write. And because I think a lot of writers are scared to write, like they get, they sit down and they freeze. They're like, well, it's got to be perfect. This first sentence has to be perfect, or I don't really know what I'm doing. And I think to your point, it's like, man, just just write. You know, just do it. And you get, like you said at the beginning, you got a lot of junk out early on by just writing. Right. And, and you know, I, I now, since I started, as I, as I went full time, I gradually learned that I do about three to five pages a day. And that's kind of my minimum. If I get three pages, I'm fine. If I get five, I'm really fine. Mm-hmm. And if I get 10, I'm excited. And once in a while, I'll get more than that in three hours. It always seems to be three hours for some bizarre reason. Yeah. But when I get it done, I polish that day. I polish as I go so that when I get through, I don't have multiple drafts that I'm trying to put together. Now, I don't know how many times I revise something daily. And if you look at it that way, you know, I might be doing multiple drafts daily of of whatever it is I've done. But when I get to the end, all I lack is a polish then. There's an exception now and then where you'll have maybe a chapter that doesn't work or that scene's not as good as you want. And maybe you could have edited it better and you do that in the polish, which might become a little more than a polish, but not for me most of the time. It's generally a draft that I that I really work hard on daily. And when I get to the end, I just turn right around and I don't give it a lot of time. I like people say, I'm going to let it rest where I think about it. I don't want to think about it because then I get bored and I'm not interested. So I go back to the start and go back through it as, as soon as I can. I might once in a while take a day off to write something else, you know. And uh, even on days when I'm not working on anything that I feel is a, you know, quote, serious, unquote, project, I will write something. You know, I'm, I may write a, a, a poem and I, I'm not really, you know, I have a book of poetry. It's actually up for an award right now, the Bram Stoker. Sure. But I don't I don't consider myself much of a poet and I, I don't read a lot of poetry, but I read some and I'll do that or I'll try to write an absurdist short story or short, short Or um, I'll try to do a little nonfiction piece or, you know, it can vary. But the important thing is I try to keep my fingers in because used to I'd finish something and I would say, well, I can take some time off. And after I'd take two weeks or a month off to go back, I felt like I was starting all over again. Yeah. I don't like that feeling. All right. Well, I want to ask you two more. We have six minutes before I get cut off here. So I want to ask you two more questions. One is, I think it's an important takeaway for a writer is, and I'm the same way when I'm writing something. Uh, and I, I feel myself getting bored or if I feel like where the story is going is something that doesn't interest me. Right. And I feel this when you're, you're saying this simply, I stop and I go, wait a minute. Okay. If I was reading this, 
what would I want to do differently? Like I want like something really different that excites me because I think the writer, you need to be excited as well as the reader, because if you're not excited, the reader is not going to be excited. And the other thing I wanted to hit on really quick is because I got to know if you could expound on this, you have a, you have a a line uh, in an interview that you uh, gave where you said um, somebody asked about characters and, and I think writing action scenes or, you know, getting moving characters around and you said you use movie tricks. Can you give a two minute and what what you meant by that? Because I'm fascinated about that as a writer. Well, you know, in, in a, a movie, they can't spend a lot of time on a scene. So I try to keep that in mind, too, because I think it's a it's a something you learn. But the obvious thing is that you can cut from one scene to another, uh, meaning that in film, they don't have to explain everything. You'll notice that a lot of times a question is asked that's never answered in film. Mm-hmm. Somebody mm-hmm. says, uh, well, what about this? And the guy doesn't answer, but they go in close on him and then cut too. And so you kind of learn to you know, you can overdo it because pros and film are different, but you can learn methodology from them. And a lot of that is making a scene, getting into a scene as late as you can and as early as you can. That's the main thing I learned from film. And to know that good dialogue means a lot more than a ton of description because it can tell you a lot about the character and about the situation. And I, you know, I love description. I love atmosphere and all that, but I don't like it done just for its sake. I like to, you know, make sure that the story has some has some speed to it. And, and every story varies. Some you require a lot more atmosphere and time. But th- that's what I mean by movie tricks. There are others, you know, too. And, uh, and and by instead of painting the picture directly, you pick a few key words as what what am I seeing when I'm looking right at this this scene? I remember there's a line in a Bradbury story. I think it's called Foghorn. It says out there in the deeps. Not out there in the sea, not out there, you know, mm-hmm. and, and though some people might technically say, well, that's not grammatically correct. Right. It, it actually is. And it also it gives this feeling in just a few words. So you're also trying to give the illusion of film uh, without necessarily writing a film. But you're borrowing. I borrow from radio shows and the fact that they can deliver so much without showing certain things. I borrow from music. Uh, sometimes it's the poetic line that just says so much. You say, I can do that in prose and they'll see it clearer than if I spend, you know, a page or two describing it. Yeah. And you, you know, I borrow from painting, you know, you all sorts of things are influences, including film. It's amazing how much you can get across with the right word to your point. Like looked out, look, looking out to the sea versus looking out to the deeps has two very different connotations. And it's, right. it, it's a miracle of language, but that you can get across so much with just a word. Okay. So the last question I have before we'll sign off is I wanted to ask you, I'm very curious about this. You mentioned that um, you, you become more confident, obviously, as you've, as you've evolved as a writer. And I think it's important for writers to hear is why I bring it up is you, one of the things you've learned is you have a greater awareness now that you're still learning the craft than you did maybe when you started. No, I always knew I was learning the craft because <laughs> you, you don't learn it. You, you learn, you do learn, but you never learn it all. It's like martial arts, no matter how good you think you are or how good you get, you have a moment in time when you realize there's more to learn and that some of the things you've learned need to be relearned. Yeah. And that some of the things that you've learned aren't really that good. Uh, they're not that effective. There's something better. So, yeah, you're constantly learning and you do that from reading. You do that from writing. You do that from living your life. And if you, if, you know, you don't want everything to have the stink of the library around it. You want to have a life. Right. And you steal from every, steal from all the above. Everybody. Mm-hmm. All right, Joe. Well, I'm going to uh, sign us off. This has been 
Absolutely amazing. I'm, uh, I can't thank you enough for being here. And, and I'm sure, sure everyone listening is taking a lot from this conversation. So, so thank you again. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. And for you guys listening, we will see you the next time on The Dark Word. Hey, you guys, it's Philip again. There's only one episode of The Dark Word left, but the good folks at Audio Hopper have picked us up for a season two. Very excited. So please make sure to hit that follow button or subscribe to be notified when season two launches later this year with all new guests and more great advice. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for more of The Dark Word. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.